Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Alicia. She has Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, and in addition to fatigue, She has lots of bloating and skin issues. She can wake up with a relatively flat stomach, but as the day goes on after consuming pretty much anything, even water, her belly gets distended. It's uncomfortable, and by the end of the day, she can hardly button her jeans. She tried making diet changes based on her doctor's recommendations for the bloating, but it only helped a little bit, because then even the healthy foods still gave her gas and bloating. Her other main issue was her skin. It was dry and irritated, and in her own words, she described it as looking saggy, wrinkly, and just blah. And by the way, blah is a word I hear a lot about skin. And she tried countless lotions and potions, you name it, but not much has changed. I actually met Alicia inside my Thyroid Mystery Solved program, and I saw that while she had made some changes previously, and started to avoid the more gas-producing foods, there were many, many other areas that she hasn't supported yet and that were a big part of the issue. I knew exactly where we needed to look to solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of Alicia's skin issues and joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. William Davis. You may remember Dr. Davis from an episode we did two years ago. If you missed that, definitely go back and listen to that one. And perhaps you've seen some of his New York Times bestsellers, the Wheat Belly series, Undoctored, and Supergut. He's also the formulator of a new gut to glow formula. If you've not had the pleasure of connecting with Dr. Davis before, you are in for a treat today because he just has so much knowledge to share. Dr. Davis, it's wonderful to have you back. Welcome to Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. Thanks, Nina. Thanks for the invitation. Always glad to come back. So people who are dealing with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's often complain about skin issues. From drier skin to skin that just feels like it doesn't rebound as well anymore. It's less elastic. It is more sagging. 
and the list goes on and on. So why do you think there's such a connection between thyroid issues and skin? You know, such an interesting connection. And there's so much your listeners can do to remedy that. So one of the things that allows an autoimmune condition like Hashimoto's to emerge is disruption of the gastrointestinal microbiome, specifically SIBO, that is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, a situation that afflicts at least half the population and probably nearly everybody with Hashimoto's. All that means is that because of our exposure to antibiotics and other factors like glyphosate, the herbicide, glyphosate is an herbicide, yes, but it's also an antibiotic and it decimates the gastrointestinal microbiome. And one of the things that can happen is that fecal microbes, these are species like E. coli and Salmonella and Campylobacter, which by the way, may sound familiar to a lot of listeners because they're also the species, not just a fecal material, but of food poisoning when fecal material contaminates food. Well, we get exposed to these things like antibiotics, those fecal microbes over proliferate and remarkably, in my estimation, one in two Americans, they ascend into the small intestine, the 24 feet of small intestine. The small intestine is not equipped to have trillions of fecal microbes because the small intestine is where you're supposed to absorb nutrients like amino acids and vitamins and minerals, and it has a very thin mucus barrier. So trillions of fecal microbes that have invaded the small intestine, they only live for a few hours. So there's massive turnover very rapidly. When they die, they release some of their toxic components. One most important is called lipopolysaccharide endotoxin, LPS endotoxin, that enters the bloodstream. And when it enters the bloodstream, it does all kinds of bad things to your health. It could be the start of weight gain. It could be the start of type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance. It impacts cognitive health, it impacts heart disease, So, but it also dries your skin because it makes its way to the skin. So redness, dryness, irritation, and even rashes, anything from seborrhea to rosacea and psoriasis is related to the bowel flora. So one of the things that led to a whole host of insights, Ina, and new projects was restoring a micro we've all lost, and that's Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who discovered it in 1962 in a woman's breast milk. Well, since then, it's almost impossible to find in people anymore because it's disappeared because it's very susceptible to common antibiotics. Well, you restore Lactobacillus reuteri, and it's very unique. You know, most of the microbes you get in a probiotic do not colonize the small intestine. They colonize the colon way, way, way down the last few feet of your GI tract. Reuteri is unique in that it colonized the entire GI tract, including the 24 feet of small intestine, the duodenum, the stomach, jejunum, ileum, where it takes up residence and produces what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics effective against fecal microbes. So a woman gets, restores lactobacillus reuteri. It pushes back those fecal microbes by killing them. And it reduces that burden of toxic components into the bloodstream and it improves skin. But it goes even farther because reuteri also sends a signal via the myenteric nervous system, the nervous system of the GI tract, up through the vagus nerve, past the diaphragm, into the chest, up through the neck, to the brain. And it tells your brain to release oxytocin, the hormone. So a lot of listeners will know oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. It's also the hormone of skin health and body shape and composition. So lots of things in there. 
But one of the things that oxytocin does is it causes an explosion in dermal collagen. Interesting. There's an, a dramatic thickness in the dermal. When we, when we age, the dermis thins and the collagen in the dermal layer becomes brittle and your body reabsorbs it. So the skin becomes thinner, crepey, you get more wrinkles. Well, here's a way to restore collagen, not just a little bit, an explosion in collagen. And oxytocin causes uh, an increase in sebum production. Sebum is the, is the thing that makes like teenagers have really moist skin. So sebum comes back. So ladies will tell me, you know what? I don't use moisturizing cream anymore because my skin is so moist. I don't use it on my face. I don't use it on my hands, even though I wash the dishes. My hands are moist all the time. I don't use hand creams anymore. So those are two of the big effects of restoring this lost microbe, lactobacillus roteri, in improving skin health. That is amazing. It's so interesting to hear. Now, let's just take a couple of steps back to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So you were saying that SIBO is extremely common and even more common in autoimmunity. And it's one of those things, it's like the chicken or the egg, right? Because we know that the gut plays such an important role in the immune system. And oftentimes people with autoimmunity have gut issues, but then at the same time, gut issues with infections, SIBO, uh, H. pylori, you know, all of these other infections are actually triggers for Hashimoto's and other autoimmune diseases as well, right? So it kind of goes back and forth. And, you know, because so many people have SIBO, you know, you're saying that SIBO is when microbes from the colon then come up into the small intestine. So what makes those microbes come up and how would someone know if they have that? Are there symptoms, are there specific symptoms? And also what type of testing can people do to see if that's the case? It's not always clear, you know, why this happens, but it does happen uh, more frequently in certain situations. If you took a stomach acid blocking drug, for instance, like Pepsid or Protonics or uh, Asifex or those things, stomach acid is a very effective barrier to the ascent of fecal microbes from the colon, as well as from the descent of oral microbes. You know, the mouth is only second to the colon, kind of scary. <laughs> density of microbes. So when you lose stomach acid, you flood the small intestine with oral microbes and fecal microbes. That's one reason. Another reason is this overexposure to antibiotics or glyphosate. Glyphosate, the herbicide, is very effective in killing off beneficial probiotic species. And it's not effective in killing off fecal microbes. So glyphosate that fills food, now it's everywhere, selects for fecal microbes. Now, what causes fecal microbes to ascend is not quite clear. It's sometimes blamed on what are called flagellated species, that these are mobile species that have little tails that can propel up the small intestine. That may be part of it, but it's not always clear why that happens. Hypothyroidism, big player, because there's hypomotility, reduced motility of the small intestine, and that doesn't clear fecal microbes very readily. And one of my favorites, the failure to address the T3 thyroid hormone. T3, as you know, plays a big role in intestinal motility. So all those people who take Synthroid or Levothyroxine, but have a T3 problem. And by the way, low T3 is much more common when you have SIBO. So which came first? Don't know. As you point out, chicken egg. <laughs> right. But somebody has hypothyroidism, they get put on levothyroxine, but the T3, and they say, of course, you've heard this a million times. I take levothyroxine. My doctor says my TSH is good. It's 2.0 microunits. 
but I'm tired and I can't yeah. lose weight. My skin is dry and I'm constipated and my hair is falling out. And their T3 is very low. Yeah, well, you are speaking my language for sure, because that is a huge thing we talk about on here, and it's the different thyroid types. And so not everyone has a high TSH or low T4, and one of the thyroid types is that low T3, which so often, like you said, just isn't tested, so people don't know. And yes, that you know motility part makes sense with SIBO, but also just the gallbladder as well. So many people, if their thyroid isn't optimized right, if they're having gallbladder issues, if that bile isn't really moving, that flushing isn't happening. So that could be another reason, I guess, as well, right? There's probably other reasons. The proliferation of preservatives in food that have antibacterial properties like potassium sorbate, the proliferation of emulsifying agents like carboxylcellulose or polysorbate 80. That's in so many things. That's even in supplements, you know, some supplements that maybe aren't as natural. We definitely see that in them. It's in foods people would never suspect. Pickles, dill pickles filled with polysorbate 80. Uh, so we swim in a sea of factors that have disrupted the gastrointestinal microbiome. So a lot of reasons why. Now, there is a, a number of ways that people can tell if they have SIBO and thereby a cause for their dry skin, skin rashes, as well as weight gain or resistant or failure to lose weight or high blood sugar or high triglycerides or fatty liver or autoimmune, <laughs> on and on and on. Because that process, SIBO and endotoxemia, the entry of bacterial toxins, is so common, so ubiquitous, and underlies so many. I would say, in fact, that if you have any modern chronic disease, not a fractured leg, but diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, stroke, fatty liver, uh, polymyalgia rheumatica, <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis, uh, neurocognitive disorder, any of those things, always got to at least consider whether SIBO and endotoxemia. So how do you recognize it? Well, there are some telltale signs of SIBO. One would be fat malabsorption. That is fat droplets in the toilet or poops that float because you're not digesting fats. And that's because microbes, fecal microbes in the duodenum or pancreatic enzymes and bile are supposed to do their job are blocked by fecal microbes. So you don't absorb fats. So fat droplets, staining of the porcelain where the water meets the porcelain, that's another sign of fat malabsorption. Food intolerances, whether it's nightshades or legumes, or FODMAPs, or histamine-containing foods, nearly all of those are SIBO that has disrupted the digestive process and can even launch an autoimmune attack against some organ you have, all from SIBO. There are conditions that are so highly associated with SIBO that you can safely assume you have it. Fibromyalgia is probably 100% SIBO. Irritable bowel syndrome is highly likely to be SIBO. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease like, like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, very high. Autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's, Graves' disease, and others, very highly associated with, with, um, with uh, SIBO and endotoxemia. Neurodegenerative conditions, uh, restless leg syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity. So I looked at this, you know, it, let's look at all the studies that ask this question. In condition, blank, what proportion tests positive for SIBO? So let's take obesity. Of the 110 million Americans who are obese now, 50% test positive. That's 55 million people right there. How about people with irritable bowel syndrome? There's 60 to 70 million people with, uh, with IBS. It varies from study to study, but about 40% will test positive. So what's that? 24 to like 30 million added on. Out of all those conditions we mentioned, and you easily 
exceed 100 million, approaching 150 million people. We're talking about something as common, probably the largest epidemic ever in the history of our species on this planet. But as you know, it's not being talked about because it takes a generation for my colleagues, just as it has with thyroid. They're still talking about levothyroxine and synthroid being the ultimate, right? <laughs> They're so far out of touch because it takes a generation or longer for my colleagues to catch up with the science and the science is out there. Yeah. And you mentioned endotoxemia, and I just want to make sure that everyone understands that. And that's really kind of the negative part. Well, there's many negative parts of SIBO. That's one of them. And it's that's when those microbes, when they die, they release their toxins, which is the LPS. And those uh, toxins, the LPS goes into the bloodstream. So the SIBO isn't just the gut. I mean, yes, it starts in the gut, right? And it's there and it can create the bloating and all of the other issues, but then it literally becomes systemic in a way, correct? Exactly right. So it's become crystal clear with good science, good evidence that microbes in the GI tract can export their effects to your brain, to your skin, to your thyroid gland, to your stomach, to your heart, to every organ of the body. There is no organ in the body in it that is immune to the effects of endotoxemia. And so while the doctor, for instance, gives you an antidepressant, but fails to address the endotoxemia that is a major driver of depressive symptoms, or gives you a cholesterol-reducing drug, when the driving force be behind your coronary, your heart disease, is endotoxemia from the gut. You can see that conventional pharmaceutical therapies are largely ineffective and do not address the underlying, not to say that endotoxin causes everything, of course not, but it's a major factor in numerous thousands of diseases. I should mention that, so you can look for those telltale signs, look for conditions that are synonymous, but there is a consumer device called the Air device, and I have no relationship to the company. The company's called Food Marble, but this is the original that measures only hydrogen gas. This is the newer one that measures hydrogen gas and methane, so it's a very nice little device. You blow into it, talks to your smartphone, zero to 10. Because with hydrogen gas, only microbes produce hydrogen gas. We do not. So you can use that these devices, it's A-I-R-E, to map out where microbes are occurring. So if you're uncertain, maybe you don't have one of those conditions that are synonymous, but you have some bloating or something like that. You can test. And there's a specific way to test it. The, the protocol for testing is in my super gut book. Unfortunately, you can't rely on instructions provided with the device because the founder, the inventor is a friend of mine, Dr. Angus Short, but he's a PhD engineer in Dublin, Ireland. And he did, surprisingly, he didn't fully appreciate what he invented. So I called him. I said, Angus, this is a mapping device. He thought it was something else. But we used it. It's very reliable, very helpful. And is this easy? It sounds like it's easier to use than a more sort of conventional breath test, you know, because typically with a breath test, you have to do that over several hours and it's it's a whole process. Is this similar or is that is it a little bit different? Similar principle. I think this is superior because when, as you point out, you go to a clinic or a lab, you have, there's a prep diet prep ahead of time. They give you a sugar like lactulose. They get a baseline level. And then over about three hours, typically they'll measure it. So you, you're going to spend an entire morning there. This you can do in the comfort of your kitchen. And by the way, they use lactulose, which I think is a flawed way to, in, in a lab or clinic. We're going to use inulin. And the reason for that is lactulose is not metabolized by many microbes of SIBO. So it tends to underestimate SIBO. 
Let's use inulin that most fecal species can metabolize to hydrogen gas. So inulin should be the fiber used in testing, but it's not. So, But we don't have to adhere to silly rules. We're going to use inulin and get a better read on where... So when you take a fiber like inulin or lactulose, it can't get to the colon sooner than 90 minutes. 90 minutes would be exceptionally fast. So any hydrogen gas that's released before 90 minutes means you have microbes living in the upper GI tract. And so that's another way to tell if you have SIBO. Now, you don't need that device if you, if, if you have fibromyalgia or irritable bowel syndrome or restless leg syndrome or an autoimmune disease, you can bank on the fact you've got SIBO or at least a severe case of colonic dysbiosis, disruption of the bowel floor, uh, and then take steps to correct it. And by the way, if someone does have SIBO, first of all, it's tough to talk to most doctors. Actually. It's just like thyroid. You talk to your doctor, say, hey, doc, uh, could you assess my T3? Oh, we, we don't do that. <laughs> yep. I had a penny for every time somebody said that. Same thing here. You go to the gastroenterologist and you say, hey, I think I've got SIBO. No, you don't. Did you consult Dr. Google again? Or I didn't see anything on your endoscopy. You must not have SIBO. You can't see it on, on endoscopy or some other nonsense answer to blow you off, right? So sadly, most of the time, not always, but most of the time you can't count on the doctor to be your advocate. And so that's why this device can be helpful. But if the doctor did know something about SIBO, they're going to hand you a prescription for Zyfaxin. That's the antibiotic, right, that they use for IBS. And has about 50, 60% efficacy. And SIBO loves to come back. So you take it, and then it comes back six months later. He hands you another prescription for Zyfaxin, $1,200, not covered by- Which what I was going to say, by the way, it's very expensive. <laughs> and not without side effects. Well, here's a question. Here are questions I ask you. I, I ask this. If SIBO means you have fecal microbes in the small intestine, what if you took a commercial probiotic? Will SIBO go away? No. It might reduce some bloating or something. In fact, it might actually even make it worse, right? Depending on the person, because the, they're just going to be a fight in between the bugs then, and, and then the good guys come up too. Might even make it worse. So what if we chose microbes that colonize the small intestine? That's where SIBO occurs. And what if we chose microbes that are able to produce bactericides, natural antibiotics effective against fecal microbes? So I chose three. Our friend I mentioned earlier, Lactobacillus ruteri, upper GI colonization, bactericin producer. Lactobacillus gasseri, the BNR17 strain, upper GI colonizer, bactericin producer. I threw in a strain of bacillus coagulans because it produces another uh, bactericin, doesn't colonize upper GI tract, but it has a great track record for relieving the symptoms of IBS. We make a yogurt out of it. Not because we love yogurt, but because it's our way of increasing microbial count. So we use my method of extended fermentation, 36 hours. So rotori, you know, microbes don't have sex, right? There's no mom and dad, male and female microbes. They just reproduce themselves. Well, rotori reproduces itself every three hours at human body temperature, about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're going to let rotori and other microbes double 12 times. We counted the microbes in our yogurt. It's not yogurt, so people say, can I buy it at the store? No, you can't buy it at the store. I, I sadly called it yogurt. I wish I didn't because people think it's the same stuff. As, no, it's completely different. Different microbes, it's different methods. We did count the number of microbes in the yogurt made this way, and there's 300 billion per half cup serving. We consume this yogurt for four weeks, and so far, 
90% of the 50 people who've done this convert to H2 negative and see relief from all the problems presumptively due to SIBO and endotoxemia. So if their rheumatoid arthritis was still persistent or if their thyroid and uh, autoimmune thyroid antibodies are persistently high, they can start drifting down. If your rosacea wasn't responding, then we start to see those things finally give way to your, to your efforts by eradicating the SIBO and endotoxin. So I think we now have a microbial yogurt solution. So, you know, if the solution, Ina, to SIBO and endotoxemia and autoimmune diseases was something drastic, like take your colon out, <laughs> well, we should be damn confident, right, that that's the right solution. What if the solution is something that looks and smells like yogurt? Well, maybe you don't have to be so absolutely certain because the, the, the ingredients in that, what I call SIBO yogurt, are actually keystone species that you should have had from your mom at birth anyway, but you've lost. So I actually, I kind of regret calling it SIBO yogurt because what I tell people now is, all right, do it for four weeks, sometimes longer if you have really bad SIBO, and then do it occasionally, two, three times a week for the rest of your life until we figure out a way to make microbes take up permanent residence. Until that happens, have it a couple times a week, three times a week, and it seems to be preventing recurrence. And it generates a lot of other, I should mention, the, some of the other benefits of Rudderi in particular. So smoother skin, reduction in fine wrinkles, forehead, crow's feet, frown lines, nasolabial fold, chin uh, tend to recede, there's increased moisture, there's a restoration of youthful muscle and strength. I personally, when I first did this several years ago, I gained 13 pounds of muscle and my strength increased by 50%. Wow. There's an increase in libido. Guys get a 50% increase in testosterone. Ladies get, you know, older ladies at, after about age 65, there's a universal phenomenon of vaginal atrophy, dryness, pain, discharge, et cetera. Vaginal moisture and the lining of the vagina is restored. There's preservation of bone density. There's social effects because of the oxytocin. There's an increase in the intensity of love and affection for the people around you. There's an increased acceptance of other people's opinions. There's an increase in generosity. Now, on and on and on. All from the power of this restored microbina. And it's just, it's amazing how much our microbe has to do with everything in the body, you know, because a lot of the things that you're mentioning with, especially the skin and some of the vaginal moisture and tone and bones, I mean, and muscle even, right? A lot of that is estrogen specific too. So most women, if they're not doing any type of hormone replacement as they go through perimenopause and into menopause, they're going to see a, a decline in all of these things. So it almost sounds like the and we know that microbiome signals so many different things. So it's as if it's somehow, obviously, I mean, it's not maintaining estrogen because the ovaries aren't producing at a certain age, but it's almost signaling those same pathways. Is, is that correct to say? Yeah, you know, I cringe when I hear a woman say she's going to take estrogen. The, the the choices females have for poor libido are awful. There's none, <laughs> essentially. There's an oral drug and an injectable drug, and they're terrible, so bad the FDA is contemplating retracting their approval, and they're awful. There's one that one has to inject uh, 45, minute, 45 minutes be before anticipated sexual encounter. Who knows 45 minutes ahead of time? But she has to inject herself in the thigh, and then it increases libido maybe a teensy-weensy bit. 
and yet costs a lot of money. That So the, women have horrible choices. Well, here's a choice you can make. It looks and smells like yogurt, and it increases libido and restores vaginal moisture. And so, in other words, I'm looking for solutions, answers that don't cause a woman to risk her life to have some improvement. And instead, this, and it reduces appetite. It selectively helps you reduce abdominal visceral fat. Now, one of the things I did also, you know, I worry about all the harm done by dietary guidelines. Cut your fat, cut your cholesterol, eat more healthy whole grains. Some of the worst messaging ever. And one of the things that's happened to to everybody is cut your fat, cut your cholesterol, cause most people to abandon consumption of organ meats. Your great grandma ate tongue and heart and pancreas and intestines. And <laughs> well, when we abandon organ meats, we also abandon sources of collagen and hyaluronic acid. Two factors that play a major role in skin health, joint health, arterial health, bone health, and other aspects of health. Now, here's the magic. We know that rotari and thereby oxytocin, for instance, it causes an explosion in dermal collagen. You can amplify the effect by adding collagen peptides. It's I think of it like a bricklayer and brick and mortar. If, if you have a bricklayer, but no bricks and mortar, he can't build a brick wall. If you have a pile of bricks and mortar, but no bricklayer, there ain't gonna be a wall. Put them together, rotari oxytocin, with collagen peptides, now you have a synergistic combined event. Even better, let's throw in hyaluronic acid because no one's eating brain anymore. The organ richest in hyaluronic acid. Most people throw away the skin. I cringe, you know, I see people buying boneless, skinless chicken breast. No. <laughs> so eat that skin that has hyaluronic acid. When a woman gets hyaluronic acid orally, not topically, but orally, it also adds to dermal collagen dermal moisture, joint lubrication, because hyaluronic acid is a principal component of the synovial fluid of your, of your joints. It's probably one of the most important things you can do for arterial health as well, because all arteries are lined by something called a glycocalyx. It's a, it's a signaling molecule that protects your arteries. It's made of hyaluronic acid. So we add hyaluronic acid and you get this massive synergy when you combine these things whether it's in joint health, skin health, losing wrinkles, skin moisture, muscle health. And so we're seeing, uh, we did a recent small human clinical trial. Uh, we did it for skin purposes, so it's small, 25 ladies. We asked them not to change their diet. Don't change your exercise program. Just take these components, the uh, rotari, hyaluronic acid, collagen peptides, and I threw in a carotenoid, astaxanthin, Carotenoids like beta carotene. The ladies did this and they lost skin wrinkles uh, uh, all around. Skin moisture improved. They're very happy with the skin effects. But one unexpected effect was that their waists shrunk dramatically. We did not change their diet. They did not change their, And they lost on average just short of three inches or 7.2 centimeters, as much as 21.6 centimeters or eight and a half inches off their waist. Now, even more interestingly, they lost uh, uh, all that waste, abdominal fat, but didn't lose weight. Now, wait a minute. How can you lose up to eight and a half inches off your waist, but not lose weight? Well, consistent with the animal evidence, very good animal, and my large experience with, in humans doing this, increase in muscle. 
Now that's important. You know, you know, I see all these people taking the GLP agonist drugs, the Wegovi, Munjaro, Ozempic, and they lose a lot of weight. What they're not told is that you lose tons of muscle. So if you lose 40 pounds, let's say over a year, and it costs you $12,000 or so, right? You lose 40 pounds. Of that 40 pounds, 10 pounds is muscle. And especially because most people who take those drugs don't have the proper instructions of what to do. You're supposed to lift heavy weights. You're supposed to change your diet. You're supposed to do all these things that they're unfortunately not doing. So it's even more muscle loss. Yeah. So if you lose 10 pounds of muscle, think about 10 pounds of ribeye steak on your kitchen table. It's all in the muscle. So you lose 10 pounds of muscle. So you know most people can't afford $12,000 a year forever. So they stop the drug after a year. So they lost 40 pounds, 10 pounds of which is muscle. They typically regain 32 to 34 pounds, which is nearly all abdominal fat because you lost the muscle. Because muscle, muscle is the principal determinant of basal metabolic rate, the rate at which your body burns energy for the work of living, you know, breathing, digestion, et cetera. So loss of muscle, marked reduction in basal metabolic rate, you regain the weight, mostly as fat, and that effect of the reduced metabolic rate lasts many years. It doesn't come back. These drugs, I think, are a death sentence because those people who regain that weight are now more pre-diabetic, diabetic, higher risk for heart disease, coronary disease, higher risk for cognitive impairment, higher risk for breast cancer. The FDA approved a class of drugs that destroys your health once you stop them. And so I think what we have, what you and I are talking about, are a way to restore youthful muscle, not lose muscle, gain muscle, target abdominal visceral fat, and look younger. You know, and I think it's just amazing that these bacteria can have those types of benefits. It is talked about quite a bit about the microbiome's effect, but I don't think not nearly in this much detail you know, about that. Do you think that it's the good bacteria, so the Ruri and some of the others in the small intestine that are creating it? Or do you think that it's getting rid of these fecal bacteria that is doing it? Or is it a combination of both? Yeah, you know, I think it's a combination of all those things. Uh, Ruri stands apart. You know, it was the first microbe I chose to play with many years ago. And as pure dumb luck, you know, I picked a microbe that's probably the most important of all. There are other very important microbes. For instance, one of the things, one of the things that is not often talked about from a autoimmune or a skin health viewpoint is the importance, the critical importance of fermented foods. Foods like kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, veggies you ferment. This should be almost cost-free. You might have to buy some cucumbers, mm-hmm, but right. you ferment them on your kitchen counter. Because here's the magic of fermented foods. The, the microbes of fermented foods, these are species like Leuconostoc mesenteroides. I'm sorry, I don't make these names up, right? Or Lactobacillus plantarum, or Wyzella species, or Pediococcus species. So these are microbes that you ingest in your fermented food, but don't take up residence. So why would they be beneficial? Well, in their passage through the 30 feet of GI tract, they feed beneficial microbes. These are microbes with names like Fecalobacterium and Acromantia. And those microbes produce a fatty acid being fed by fermented microbes. These beneficial microbes in your GI tract in turn produce a fatty acid called butyrate. And butyrate is spectacular for suppressing autoimmune diseases. 
improving skin health. So when butyrate gets to your skin, it acidifies the skin. Healthy skin should be modestly acidic. So people with rosacea and psoriasis and seborrhea and dryness typically have pHs that are near neutral, less acidic, or even alkaline. And when that happens, you encourage growth of pathogens like Staphylococcus aureus. When you acidify the skin via butyrate, so fermented foods, butyrate, acidification of the skin, it discourages Staphylococcus aureus and encourages a good microbe, a cousin, Staphylococcus epidermidis, and it gives you skin moisture, reduces redness, reduces potential for rashes and blemishes. So once again, microbes, in this case from fermented foods, have dramatic effects on health, including on the skin. Yeah, and butyrate also is really great to continue to diversify the gut. So there's so many other amazing uses of that too. Now for people who know that they have SIBO and maybe they have taken Zyfaxin from their doctor and maybe they've seen some results and then it came back and maybe they've done it more than once. And, you know, there's also a lot of different natural antimicrobials that have been studied for SIBO and maybe they've taken those too. And yet they're not quite getting all of these benefits? Is it because all they're doing is killing and not replenishing? Or is it because maybe they're not doing things to properly create that motility so it doesn't come back? Yes, all those things. But most of all, they haven't restored the microbes they've lost. You know, if, if species like Rotari and Gasserai prevent proliferation and ascent of fecal species, and all you did was kill them, they're coming back. They are going to come back. And so why not recolonize the small intestine? Now, it's not just about rotarine gasseri. Once you reimplant those species, they encourage the proliferation of other beneficial species. And you can amplify it further with fermented foods. So by the way, if anybody wants to make that SIBO, SIBO yogurt um, or the rotarine yogurt, it's all my super gut book. It's in my blog, drdavisinfinitehealth.com blog. I, I try to make this as accessible as possible. It's really easy. People get bogged down. Oh my God, so daunting to make the... No, it's really very easy. <laughs> but you can't talk to people who make homemade yogurt. They're making yogurt for another purpose. We're making it as a bacterial count amplification system that happens to look and smell like yogurt. So you can't use store-bought yogurt to do this. They won't even come close. It's completely different. Uh, but that's all, all the recipe is easy. There's a little bit of expense involved. Because you have to source the microbes. There's no one source for them. So there's a few dollars to spend to source the microbes from various companies. And it's all listed in the Super Gut Book where you get these things. You will need a device. These are body temperature fermenting microbes. So you need some device to keep it at about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Could be a yogurt maker. Could be an Instant Pot with a yogurt setting. Yeah, the Instant Pot makes it too now. And so many people have that. And they're not super expensive. Various sous vide devices can be used also. Uh, the only caveat is if you use some of these devices, it, it helps to get a thermometer, an inexpensive thermometer, put some water in your device and let it run for an hour or two just to validate. Some of these devices are very inaccurate. So Rotary, for instance, uh, likes about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. What if your device is running at 120 degrees, which is common, by the way? It kills the Rotary. So you may have to buy a new device that doesn't do that. But I list all the devices you can use, but it's, it's very simple. And you do that for 36 hours and you have this rich, thick and delicious yogurt. It's not yogurt, <laughs> but it has all these microbes with spectacular benefits. And these microbes, in addition to eradicating 
the bad fecal bacteria from there and replenishing that, are they actually also absorbing the LPS? I mean, obviously with less bad guys in the small intestine, there should be less LPS getting into the bloodstream. But what can we do to kind of pull out the LBS that's already circulating from before? You really can't. So what we're doing with the rotarine, gasrite, et cetera, is killing off the source. Now, sometimes, as you know, can result in uh, some very unpleasant so-called die-off effects. So you take your rotarine, gasrite, or for that matter, any antibiotic, whether it's herbal or prescription, and you're going to have a massive die-off. You're killing off fecal microbes. And that can cause anxiety panic, a racing heart, sometimes low-grade fever, muscle. It's kind of like having the flu. So we use various binders like activated charcoal, 1,000 milligrams. Some people like bentonite clay. And all they do is they bind the LPS and you poop it out. And they, they work pretty well. The activated charcoal works within 10 to 15 minutes. It's not good for you because it binds nutrients too. But if you're, let's say you're taking the rotarite, gasserite, bacillus coagulant, SIBO yogurt, or whatever you're doing to kill off SIBO, and your heart is racing, you're feeling panicky, you're getting shaky, right? It's not good. It's not, it doesn't feel good. You can take a little bit of activated charcoal, capsule of 1,000 milligrams, and gone within 15 minutes. So it helps. Thankfully, these effects typically last only a couple of days or so. And then you've reduced the number of fecal microbes with your SIBO yogurt or other strategy that you don't have much die off anymore. It's especially bad though, you know, a little off topic, but when you address fungal overgrowth, fungal die-off is really unpleasant. Yes. It makes you feel drunk on top of other things. <laughs> drunk, you're suicidal. So that's where things like activated chocolate can be very helpful to get you through that rough period. Yeah. And I'm assuming that these good bugs can help not just with SIBO, but CFO as well to some extent, right? The small intestinal fungal overgrowth. Rotori is reasonably good at suppressing fungal overgrowth like candida. Some of the other species like Gasseri, also helpful. What, I, what I've never seen though is fungal overgrowth eradicated just with microbes alone. So we do add some other things to uh, reduce fungal species. I have a recipe, very simple and fun. I call it Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juice. Really easy. You can buy a commercial probiotic. It's not really a probiotic, it's more of a prebiotic, but it's a microbe. It's a fungus called Saccharomyces boulardii. It's a cousin of Saccharomyces cerevisiae used to make beer and wine. But we buy it as a commercial product called Flora Store. You can go to Walgreens, Target, buy it for a few dollars. Uh, we empty one capsule into any volume of juice. The murkier, like apple cider, not apple juice. Uh, I use a mango passion fruit juice. Just make sure there's no preservatives in the juice, no potassium sorbate, no sodium benzoate, just juice. So empty that capsule into the juice, cap, agitate lightly, uncap or loosen the cap. And typically it takes about, it differs on the juice, but typically 48 to 60 hours. You want to keep it capped lightly because it's going to produce so much carbon dioxide that if you cap it tightly, it will explode in your kitchen. You'll see it but after 24 hours, you'll see it bubbling like mad. Well, after 60 hours, we go 60 hours because we want all the sugar to be gone. There's so much sugar in juice. We want the microbes to consume the sugar. So taste it. It's typically 60 hours, depending on the temperature in your home. But typically 60 hours, taste it should be very minimally sweet, if at all. And we consume that quarter, half cup, once, twice, three times per day. One of the most important things you can do, 
that helps you in the fight against fungal overgrowth because it's a fungus. It competes with candida and other species. Right. We also use some other things if you do have a fungal overgrowth. Berberine is very good for that. Curcumin is okay for that, not real helpful. Oil of oregano, very helpful. Love oregano. Yeah. Garlic. So there are things you can use for fungal overgrowth. I think fungal overgrowth, in a, I think you know this, is a lot more common than people suspect. Oh, yeah. Often uh, evidenced as eczema. It's a very common expression of fungal overgrowth. Fungal infections elsewhere, a lot of fungal infection behind the ears, dandruff, under the neck, under the breasts, in the groin, on the toenails, on the fingernails, very common. And I take that to mean if you got fungal infestations on the other parts of your body, a, a vaginal, if you have fungal infestations elsewhere, it may signal that you have fungal overgrowth in the colon, maybe in the small intestine as well. We're actually doing a couple of more episodes really specific to candida and getting a lot more in depth into that as well. So we'll have a lot more in information on that too. Dr. Davis, this has been so informative. I love how you explain things in such a simple way. And I'm just so excited to hear about um, all of the new research you're doing and the product and how much of an effect it has on SIBO with something very simple like that, but also the effect of that on skin and on our waistline and our muscle and all the things that you mentioned. So for those that want to learn more and want to connect with you, how can they do that? Where can they find you and find more information? There's a super gut book like that one there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's also my website, drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Those are the best places to start. I also have a podcast like yours. Mine's called Define Health, where I also discuss some of these things. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was really lovely to speak with you again, and I look forward to staying connected. Same here, Ian. I'm always happy to come back on. As you just heard, there is a huge correlation with our thyroid, our gut, and our skin, which is why supporting the thyroid as well as the gut properly will not only help gut issues, but skin issues as well. When I looked in depth into Alicia's blood work, I saw that she was the high TSH thyroid type. Now, most people don't realize, but there are actually three different subtypes of high TSH. Alicia was subtype three. And by the way, if you want to know more about your thyroid type and how to use it to help your thyroid, please be sure that you are on my email list. I share a ton of valuable content there, and that is also where I send personal invitations to limited time trainings and support calls that I do so that I can help you better understand this. I put a link in the show notes about how we can connect if you're not already on my email list. And for Alicia, we supported her high TSH subtype three type specifically for her. And what we saw was her TSH went from 4.5 down to 2.3 within two months, which was super exciting. As we were doing this, we also ran a stool test and a SIBO test, and we did find overgrowth. I first used three products from Biotics, ADP, FC Cytal, and Dysbiocyte, and we did that to clear out the bugs. And then we followed it with homemade yogurt to get all the probiotics in, and we used the recipes from Dr. Davis's book, Supergut. What a difference from that. Now, at first, her bloating did seem a little bit worse just for the first few weeks, but I really encouraged her to stay the course because that can happen and we can have a die-off reaction. And then in two months, the bloating and distension was gone completely and she started to notice a shift in her skin. She then 
added the gut to glow supplement orally. And she actually started to use that supplement as the starter for her yogurts. And she's so excited to see even more changes in the coming months using both the yogurt and the glut and glow to keep the SIBO at bay and to continue supporting her body with the ruteri, the collagen, the astaxanthin, so that she could see even more differences in her skin. If you wanted to try the Gut to Glow supplement, I am really excited to give all of my listeners 10% off with code GLOW on my website, and I will put the link to the Gut and Glow in the show notes. As always, you can see the full show notes on the website, or just scroll down to see them wherever you're listening to this right now. The gut and glow is best when used consistently, so for about eight weeks. And while, of course, some may see differences much earlier, it is recommended that you stay the course to really see changes, and you can use it to make your very own homemade yogurt as well, in addition to taking it orally. Between the gut and the thyroid support, her skin has a glow now. The dryness was gone. She actually hardly even needed lotion anymore. Her skin was so much more plump and that actually made the wrinkles a lot less noticeable. She was really, really excited. And of course, so was I. If Alicia sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming up in the next few months. We have lots of guests talking about things like Candida. We're going to be talking more about Epstein-Barr, more about very specific strategies that you can use right now for hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. So please be sure that you stay tuned. And I am so excited to continue to connect with you. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.